Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift we have in your spirit being with us that because of what Christ has done, he purchased for us repentance. And with repentance comes your spirit and forgiveness. And we pray that you continue to work in us what only you can do through your spirit, which is a heart that longs to look like Jesus that is driven to kill sin and to pursue holiness. Not only because we love you, but also because you've commanded us to be a witness to the world of the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so we pray that a little bit more of that happens this morning as we study this first foray into the mission that you've given the church to go and make disciples of all nations. Would you give us wisdom this morning and hearts that are receptive to what your Holy Spirit would do in us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Acts 2, <clears throat> starting in verse 14 this morning. I don't know how far we're going to get, but we're going to try to get through all of Peter's sermon. Um, last week we discussed uh, how the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was that initial statement of the mission of what God has given the church. This is how it's going to start. It's going to be by His Spirit. It's going to be um, a, a sign of the, the kingdom of Christ being established uh, on earth. And uh, the crowd was a little perplexed by what they, what were they seeing? What were they hearing, by the way? What, just, just a little recap real quick. They were hearing uh, rushing wind. Okay, possibly hearing the rush, rushing wind, yes. They were seeing, um, they were hearing people speak in their own language. Okay, so a lot of different languages going on, a lot of people from different places hearing the dialects and the, and the, and the languages of the places that they were come from. The people that were in the crowd, who were they? Jews of all nations that were Jews. They were they were from all all the nation all the known world at the time, uh, and they were Jews. The the dispersed Jews that were that had moved back to Jerusalem. What's going on? What context are we in? Feast of Pentecost, first fruits, harvest. Uh, we talked about some of the the implications of the timing of this, um, and so they're primed. Hearing all of this, they see the fact of the Holy Spirit moving through these people. <clears throat> they don't know what it means. What is this going on? Right? And some of them were even scoffing. What did they say? Are you drunk? What's going on? So Peter is primed to give a response to people who are primed to receive an answer. You see how this is orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And he stands up full of the Spirit with the other 11 apostles who are full of the Spirit and he testifies to who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, in verses 14 through 16, we see this transition from the crowd's confusion to Peter's explanation. It says he lifted up his voice. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to the language here. Lifted up his voice is a common Semitic uh, phrase of someone, uh, whenever you're introducing someone who's about to give a big speech. Okay, so the, he, Luke is writing in a way to prime you this is a significant event. This is a significant speech. So lifted up his voice, and he says, addressed. And he uses that word in the Greek. Um, it, it means to speak seriously with gravity. So there's this, there's this powerful speech he's about to give, and it and it's, has the connotation of what a prophet would do. That's the, that's the idea behind what he's, what he's saying. The word is often used for prophetic or inspired speech. Curiously, it's the same word that was used of those who were speaking in tongues earlier. So it kind of also gives you a clue to what they were doing at the time. This is not gibberish. This is powerful prophetic speech. Again, going to that point. All right. How does he begin? What does he say to them? Okay, yes, he addresses who they are. How does he begin his speech? What does he address first? The people are not drunk. They're not drunk. I, he immediately deals with the, scar the snarkiness, right? He immediately, go he immediately goes to, the, to, the, to the, the scoffing, and he says, they're not drunk. What does he say? Why, why do we know they're not drunk? It's only the third hour of the day. What's the joke? There's time for that later. Right? It's the third hour of the day. Third hour is 9 o'clock. And that's generally in Jewish mindset, the time for prayer. And then the fourth hour, they're eating. So it's a feast time. There's going to be celebration that happens. The earnest celebration of Pentecost doesn't happen until the evening, so why do you think they'd be drunk now? It's, some have said this is kind of the first episode of humor that you see Luke building into his recounting. There's a lot of kind of ironic and, and humor stuff. So he dresses them, some would argue, with a humorous statement. They're not drunk yet, but there's time for that later. This isn't, that's not the time for that. You know? So that's kind of the way he starts it off. Um, in any event, he's correcting their misunderstanding or addressing their, their snarkiness with the, with, the, with the drunkenness. And he gets their attention. He then proceeds immediately into Joel chapter 2 and finds it applicable to the events. And it's strange that he would go here. 
What's going on in Joel chapter 2 is Israel had just been invaded by locusts. Okay, and so they wiped out their crops, they're, they're facing severe famine, they're all in despair. And Joel says, don't despair, God's going to supply for you materially and bless you materially. Uh, to, 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 uh, but it's a call for, in the midst of this famine, a call for repentance. And then he prophesies about this whole idea of the Spirit being poured out and your maidservants, your manservants prophesying and all of this, but it's in the context of Israel only in a material want. And Peter quotes it from the Greek almost verbatim with one minor but very significant change. He says, in the last days, that's the phrase he uses, but in the, in the Greek it would be, and afterward. Why would you think he would make that change? Because he's applying it now. He's applying it now, and what is he saying by saying, in the last days? Does that have any kind of depth of meaning? As opposed to, afterward. Christ had fulfilled what he came to do, and so after that, that becomes the last days, because... He's kind of the watershed moment. This passage had become, yes, this passage had become um, a, a more than just, hey, God's going to supply for us materially in Israel. It had taken on the characteristic of this is an eschatological event, God pouring out his spirit. And so he, he builds off of that. He believes that. He's convinced of this, that what is going on is a fulfillment of Joel 2, even though it had a present meaning at the time, right? Of the materialism, uh, of, of, of prosperity and all that. But he has this change to bring, to really get their attention. This is eschatological. This is end times. This is the last days. It's begun. Something's going on here. And what's the sign of that? What's the sign of it? The pouring out of the Spirit. This is what we've been promised. This is what you're looking for. This is the end time. This is the last days. Right here, 1st century, 33 AD. He's under the absolute conviction that the Messianic age had already dawned with the resurrection of Christ. We're in it, he's saying. And the Spirit's coming was a confirmation of that reality. And, it, it, and he pulls from Joel saying, sons and daughters, there were men and women in the 120, right? So you have this clearly uh, being applied here. And no doubt Joel had seen that the Spirit's pouring out only applied to Israel. And probably there's some Christians who are prophesying under the Spirit who also thought it only applied to Israel. But what does Joel say? Verse 21, Peter harps on this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. And that's really what Peter wants to get to. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What, what are we to make of, just before we move on from this, what are we to make of these signs and wonders things going on? Did, had this happened before this event? I mean, had the sun darkened? Had the moon turned red? Had, had blood 
and fire and vapors of smoke gone on before this day of the Lord? It it depends on what you mean. Well, what do you mean by that? It, it's it's more uh, prophetic, grandiose language ushering in a new uh, era, a new timeline, a new something has ended, and big changes come about. So yes, it had happened before. Okay, when? At Christ's death. What had happened at Christ's death? It became dark for three hours. The sun had been darkened. But we're not given that the moon turned red. Uh, what had happened here? Was there blood at the cross, by the way? Just a question. Yeah, okay, so we got that. What about here? What do we have? There's fire. Some have argued that we see some of these signs being fulfilled here at Pentecost. Generally, the thought is that these are metaphorical terms that introduce an apocalyptic event, that these are prophetic ways of describing, get your attention, this is a big deal kind of stuff. But there were some things that happened that would fit this bill. The sun was darkened for three hours at the cross. Fire and blood did happen at the cross and again at Pentecost. So you have this kind of, of uh, argument being made by some people, but... For whatever reason, it's standard apocalyptic language to draw attention to, to this significant event. But what Peter wants to get to, again, is verse 21. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who does Joel mean by Lord? When it was written, what did Joel mean? The Father. Yahweh. Yahweh. Who does Peter mean? Christ. Jesus. And he's about to get to that, isn't he? Who is Lord? Christ is Lord. Right? So let's look at verse 22. Because the question then becomes, whoever calls on his name and whoever confesses him as Lord will be saved. Well, who is he? And why should I call on him? Right? So look what he says, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God raised up, 
And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Is this the guy, just side note, is this the guy that was cowering in the fire scared by a little girl? He's in a crowd in the middle of Jerusalem saying, you crucified, you boneheads, the Lord of glory. You crucified him. What is going on here? Holy Spirit tends to embolden people. The Holy Spirit tends to embolden people. <laughs> okay. And here's the heart of his sermon. Verses 22 through 36 is the heart of his sermon. He goes to the scripture to first show who Jesus is. And here's the basic, he gives the first the basic outlines of Christ's ministry. Attested by God. That word in, in the original language has a, a connotation of, um, uh, of, of someone who's acknowledged to be or who is, um, or who is uh, uh, has received an appointment, attested or accredited is another way it says. It's a somewhat technical term for someone who holds an office or someone who has received an appointment but not yet entered into active service. And it's kind of that last meaning that we see here. Christ was... Um, attested to as Messiah. But he fulfilled the requirements of being Messiah when he died and was raised again. And so now he has attained that, that role, that office. Um, Christ fulfilled the requirements to take on the role of Messiah upon his death and resurrection. How did God attest to Jesus' appointment, though? What is, it, what is Peter saying? What did he do? Well, there's that. In his life, how did he attest before? The signs, and wonders. the signs and wonders. He says miracles, signs, and wonders, right? And what does he say about their knowledge of those? He did it in your midst. He did it in your midst. I'm not, this isn't something that I'm just pulling out of the air. This isn't something that happened, you know, in a closet. This was in the city. You saw this. He did miracles. Those are actual attested works. But a miracle in and of itself means nothing without meaning, right? It's an event. What else does he say happened? Miracles. Starts with an S, ends with eins. Signs and wonders, right? That phrase, and you see those words used together again and again and again, has a connotation of something that happens on the surface, but also has a deeper meaning underneath it. And he says, you should have recognized this. You should have known what it meant when he fed the 5,000. It wasn't just about eating. You should have known what, he meant, what, what it meant when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It just wasn't a, a, a spectator sport here. You should have known what was going on. He was attested by God as the Messiah through the signs and wonders of the miracles that you saw. 
They're not done in isolation. The miracles have no value in themselves except that they point to the power and purpose of God behind them. And he says, as you yourselves know, Peter's saying they missed it and they shouldn't have. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is he saying there? What, why does he say that? You killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. We'll get to that first. What does he say? What is he saying there? He's establishing their guilt, right? You killed, you murdered him. That's a guilty act. How did they do it? Did they drive the nails? They did it by means of an agent. They used Gentiles to do it? They used lawless men. Incidentally, are the lawless men, are they, are they just neutral? He establishes a judgment against them, right? These guys are guilty, and you're guilty because you colluded with them to get it done. Was that an evil act? Yes. I would argue it was the most heinous evil act in all of human history, to crucify the Lord of glory. And yet, what does he say? By what? The determined plan. The determined plan and foreknowledge of God. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. At the same time. Right? Just pause for a moment. Let that sink in. He establishes their guilt. They colluded with wicked men, and there's judgment on them for it. Um, all right. You killed him, but God raised him. The Gentiles crucified, and you colluded. There's none righteous, no, not one. And here we have the basic, just bare bones, stripped down for public consumption gospel. You killed him, but God raised him. And we'll see that again and again and again. That's the very basic message that they say again and again. You killed him, but God raised him. Jews and Gentiles alike are responsible for the death of Jesus. Regardless of what arguments people made with the movie... <laughs> Both are guilty, but God raised him. That's the message of the church in its most basic, basic form. Who is he? He's Messiah. What happened? He was killed. Who is he? He was raised. What, what did he do? He was raised, and he now sits. Um, then he goes to the scripture to fulfill, to support his argument. Who is he? God's appointed Messiah, the one you killed and the one God raised. It's the no-frills gospel. All right. Why does he go to this passage from David? What is he trying to establish here? If who he is is the Messiah, why does he go here? Because he just said this was the definite plan of God. So okay. Prophesied it was going to happen. Okay. 
Why not use Isaiah? Because David's a more direct connection, maybe? Well, direct connection to what? To You're, these people, the Jews. Okay, in what sense? Well, in Second Kings, the, the promise to always have always have a king um, through David's line. So he's establishing more so the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the son of David through this illusion. He's going to David, and you're right. He's going to David because David can't fulfill what he's saying. Right. I'm not going to see corruption is what David is saying. But did David see corruption? He's basically doing a Shilin argument. <laughs> David is dead. Moses is dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph are dead. Joshua and Jacob are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Right? That's what he's doing. He's going to David because David is the one that God was in covenant with on the kingship side of it. Never to let your throne be empty. Christ is eternal. He's always been on the throne. And he's pulling from that, showing David cannot fulfill this. And so he says, as David prophesied, because he was a prophet, he said this. This is a statement that cannot apply to David. Peter doesn't cite it to establish that the resurrection happened. Do you, re do you realize that? I mean, he doesn't. How does he establish that the resurrection happened? What does he say? Well, he starts the book off at the ascension, which is an assumption that he was raised. How does he establish that? Peter? Yes. How does he say the resurrection well, happened? You all saw. You saw 500 people attested. You, you saw his miracles. We've seen him raised. Right? We've seen him alive. Um, he didn't see... Uh, he, 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 he doesn't use it to establish the resurrection. He uses it to establish that Jesus is the Messiah. He cites it to establish why the resurrection happened. Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he didn't see the corruption in his body and wasn't abandoned by God to death. It has to apply... David's prophecy has to apply to something crazy that a man would rise from the dead. It has to apply to something crazy. And Peter is testifying crazy has happened and we've seen it. <laughs> what we didn't think could ever happen has happened. Their witness is testimony to the fact and the scripture that Peter uses provides the reason that it happened. And so what does he do? He's calling them it's time to repent. This has happened. It's significant. It's time to repent. And then next he shows what he's done. He goes, uh, first he goes Psalm 16, that passage with David. And then he goes again, Psalm 110. Not only did God raise him, but he raised him. What does he mean by that? He's ascended. Where has he ascended? To be with the Father in what capacity? It's to rule. To rule. How do you know that? What does it say? We'll let you know that. And what is he saying that would. At the right He's at the right hand of the Father. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So it's not David, obviously. 
my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ah, till I make your enemies your footstool. What does that imply? Conquering. Conquering. He's not pasty white Jesus in a dress here. <laughs> He's the conquering king. Until I make God, I make your enemies your foot. Sit here. You're done. It's done. You're finished. What you have done has established you as the conquering king. So let me, let me make your enemies your footstool. Now, what is the implication of that? And you crucified him. Repent. <laughs> Don't you think? Repent. Not only did God raise him, but he raised him. He's alive and ascended, and we've all seen it. Again, Scripture provides the reason the apostles provide the testimony of the fact that it happened. They saw him ascend. And in fact, the other 11, in order for Matthias to be there, he had to see him ascend too, so they could all testify, we've all seen this. Know for certain that God has made him what? God has made him what? Lord and Christ. Know what he says? Does he say Lord or Christ? <clears throat> yes, I accepted Jesus as my Savior before, long before I made him my Lord. Really? Have you ever heard anybody say that? I have. And it caused a tick in my right eye when I heard that. He is Lord and Christ. You can't have one without the other. I, I want to say, have you lost your mind? You can't have one without the other. For Him to be your Savior means that He's your Lord. And to act contrary to that betrays the fact that He may not be your Savior. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. There is no middle, middle ground. There is no safe harbor for sin. We are either actively submitting to His rightful Lordship over this planet or we're in a dangerous and precarious state of rebellion. Get that wimpy, gospel, lispy nonsense away from me. That's not the gospel. King David calls this one Lord. The same argument, by the way, that Jesus used against the Pharisees. Who's he talking about? Remember that whole discussion? Psalm 110, just so you know, is, is, a, is a favorite text of the early church. And you can see the appeal. I mean, it's the affirmation here in the Psalms that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of Father. And Peter sees it as a nice transition to hearken back to Joel and direct them uh, to call on the name that is above every name. Look at verses 37 through 41 as we wrap it up here. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Quick question. Those who were cut to the heart, do you think some of them might have been those who were saying, what are you, drunk? Mm -hmm. Do you think that maybe the snarkiness that they saw before turned into a cry for repentance here? Mm -hmm. 
Possibly, certainly, I would think. What should that teach us? Humility. Humility, sure. Maybe not to be so offended at people's first responses. Ah. It's real easy to get defensive when people get snarky, isn't it? The defense that we have is to the gospel, not of our own appearance before people about what we're saying or whatever. Um, does that not give you hope for the snarky family member? For the snarky person at work? The snarky fellow student that you have lunch with or are trying to witness to? Or the snarky person in the pew that wants to make Jesus his Savior but not his Lord? Should we not recognize that we can't manipulate outcomes? That we can't flip the switch in somebody's snarky little heart? That that comes by the Spirit? And yet, here we are called to be faithful. I mean, this happens by means of Peter's bold proclamation being full of Spirit. It doesn't stop there. We'll see this again and again in Acts, that people proclaim, they live holy lives, that testify to the Lordship of Jesus, and God moves. That's the means by which He works. And we should not be overwhelmed with the opposition at the beginning. That's not our, that's not our deal. I can't overcome, out, I, I can't tweak it, I can't buy somebody's gas at the gas station and hope that they suddenly see Jesus and, you know, whatever, do the church program of gas buying or whatever. And there's a nonsense thing we saw a long time ago. Anyway, that doesn't, that's not the gospel. I proclaim Jesus. I live a life that testifies to His Lordship. Repentance when I need to. Holiness, always moving toward that. And calling on it, my brothers and sisters, as part of church life. But I can't, I can't, I can't tweak outcomes. I can't gimmick it. Does that make sense? All right. What happens to the crowd? It's the work of the Spirit through the means of the faithful preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel. Um, all right. Look what he's pointing to here. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right. What are the four essentials of conversion that he points to here, just real quickly? What does he say? Repent. Repent. Kind of important. Be baptized. Be baptized. What else? It's in the list. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the last one. What's the third one? Starts with an F. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, thank you. Forgiveness. Okay, that's interesting. The essentials of salvation, the essentials of being saved are repentance, baptism, forgiveness, and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, what are we to make of that? 
Let's separate it out. Who does what? Who does the repenting? We. We do. Who does the baptizing? We. And the water? We. We. Okay. Who does the forgiving? God. Some, yes, but in salvation. <laughs> God does, right? And then who does the filling of the Holy Spirit? God does that. Okay, so we have repentance and baptism being man-side stuff. We have forgiveness and spirit being, and I'm talking just on the ground. I know you're, well, God, there's a gift of repentance. and I, I get that. No, I saw it in the face. You, you can try to deny it. It was there. Um, so you, and then you have God doing the, the, the forgiving and the, um, so, so we have to be baptized to be saved. Is that what it's saying? Grant says yes. He wants to be the contrarian. Why do you say that? Baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit to be saved. Yes. Okay, here's the, here's the issue. I'm going to get to it quickly because we're running out of time. There is an argument here. An argument. Imagine that in church, in church life. There's an argument over this deal. Um, it starts with, and I'm just going to cut to where, where I think we as Baptists land on this. It starts with repentance. And he lists it first. And from repentance flows, I want to be obedient, I want to identify what's going on in my heart. Right? That's baptism. Notice it starts with believing and trusting for our Presbyterian friends. It starts with believing and trusting. <laughs> and then baptism flows as an act of obedience to that. Repentance is the condition. Who is he? What has he done? I believe that. I don't want to be who I am anymore. Right? And then from that, the promise of God's forgiveness. I accept, I'm not going to judge you. You're, you're in Christ. Be filled with my spirit. So the repentance and the growing in Jesus continues. You see that? So repentance is the key. The other stuff flows from it. A heart that wants to be obedient starts with the, the baptism as a, as a public identification of I'm not me anymore. Um, there's a great and I was, there's a great story of Augustine. He was just a ladies' man before he came to faith and had lots of lady experiences. And so he he was after he was converted, he he had he'd gone through the study, he ascended to kind of a bishop uh, of of um, uh, where was it? He, he was from Hippo, but he was in one of the A's in Egypt. Anyway, so he he was walking through town, and one of his old mistresses was. Augustine, Augustine. He just ignored her, kept walking. Augustine, Augustine. He just ignored her, kept walking. And he said, she finally got in front of him and said, Augustine, it is I. He said, yes, madam, but it is no longer I. That's repentance. And that's public identification of baptism. I'm not me anymore. I'm bought with a prize. Baptism is not the cause of salvation. It's a natural result of it. Obedience. It's a symbol of the obedience of fighting sin and striving to look more like Jesus. It's a sign of the striving for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so the idea, the word there, the Greek word there is eis, E-I-S. And it can be translated, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, which implies that baptism is part of, I mean, that's how you get saved. Or it's be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. Because you've been forgiven for your sin. And that's, that is 
from the rest of Scripture seems to be the more consistent connection with forgiveness and repentance um, that we see sometimes even when baptism isn't even mentioned at all. All right. Likewise, same thing, filling the Spirit is not for salvation, but because of it. Tongues does not save you. Repentance and trusting or calling on Jesus saves you. By the same token, lest we beat our chest too much, knowledge does not save you. Knowing all the creeds does not save you. Repentance and trusting in Jesus saves you. Reading the dead guys should have the same effect that Peter's ser simple sermon did. It should cut to the heart and lead us further to repentance and trust in Jesus. So who will be saved if they call on Jesus? What does he, who does he say? Everyone. You say that to a bunch of Jews in the first century. It takes a little boldness. Salvation is not only for the group here at Pentecost, but who else does he say in the, in the text? For you, your children, and all who are far off. So far off, let's quickly deal with that. Who are the far off ones? Gentiles. Gentiles. So not just Judea. What does he mean for you and your children? Here's a discussion with a good Presbyterian. What does that mean for you and your children? They're not born into it. They must also call. They must also repent. It doesn't stop with just this generation. It doesn't just stop with this crowd. It's not a one-time offer by God, repent and trust in my Messiah. It's going to continue throughout generations, this call to repentance and faith in Jesus. All right. We can talk later about why someone would repent, but repentance, believing, is the key. I, I do want to point out real quickly, though. Look at verse 47. I'm sorry, did I say 40? Yeah, 47. Yes. They were, when, when it says, uh, they were, uh, 41 says, Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Look at passive. Who, was, who added them? Verse 47 gives you the answer. The Lord, the Lord did. Because he kept doing it. As we see in 37 through 47 that Philip's going through right now, which I'm thrilled that he's talking about this too, that, he, that we see that God is adding to them. All right. It's 10.05. The takeaway. A takeaway. There's a lot here, obviously, that I'm, that I'm not going to get to. But I think a takeaway for us is that we cannot finesse the outcome. We can only be faithful to proclaim His Lordship and present it through our obedient lives. Um, if I'm looking for a hard application here, it's be cut by Peter's sermon. Are you cut by Peter's sermon? Are we faithful to His Lordship in these areas to boldly proclaim not trying to finesse outcomes and to be challenged of the fact that He is both Lord and Christ in our lives? Are we demonstrating His Lordship by our pursuit of holiness? Are we cut by Peter's sermon? To be obedient to the mandate, I'm going to stop there. Don't want to. Um, but let's pray.
Father, this is such a simple sermon. Jesus died, you raised him, repent. It's the basic call that you have put out, the basic command that you have put out on all flesh. This is my king. Submit to him. Judgment is coming. And those who are found in him, you have been so gracious to cover us in his righteousness. The stakes are high. Would you by your spirit embolden us to share the gospel clearly, simply, Help us to work through the desire we often have to sound more intelligent than we are. This is not a complicated message. Would you give us boldness to be simple and straightforward, calling all men to repentance and faith in Jesus? Repent and believe the gospel. That's really all we have. Who is he? What has he done? Repent and believe the gospel. We make it so complicated. Would you again give us a zeal to proclaim Jesus? Would you again give us a zeal? Fill us with your spirit again to live holy lives that are submitting to his lordship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.